Well, we're excited to uh, present you this little clip from a 120-minute Puritan documentary that will be coming out in June. And at the Reformation Heritage Books uh, bookstall and also Banner True Trust, you can pick up a package like this, a little box. Inside is a little slip that you can just fill out your code and your your shipping address and send it in, and you will receive in June a package of materials for the low price of $90. It's going to be a 120-minute Puritan documentary. You just saw four minutes here, but it's also going to include an introduction introduction book to the Puritans uh, by Michael Reeves and, and myself, and then 34 lessons at a somewhat deeper level, but still designed for lay people, uh, done by most of the men sitting in the front row here, and a number of others, by about 20 different uh, Puritan uh, experts around the world. And then there's a workbook that you can take your congregation through on each of these lessons. Each lesson is 15 to 17 minutes long, and so you could probably do three of them or so in an evening, and you can walk your congregation through an introduction to the Puritans, and spending, of course, a whole evening watching the 120-minute documentary. If you follow this course with your congregation, uh, with the blessing of the Spirit, you can be assured that as your people begin to read the Puritans, and you as well, your level of holiness by God's grace will rise, and so will your people's. And that will have a profound effect on your church. So that's the purpose, actually, of the whole package. And this is the lowest price, pre-order price, that you'll get. So please pick up a box and, uh, and, and do your pre-order, and you will receive it, God willing, in June. And I hope it will be a great blessing to you and to your flock. Now, I also have the uh, great honor and the privilege of uh, sharing some more exciting news that relates to this. About two or three months ago, uh, David Woolen, my right-hand man, had this idea that he and I should fly out and see John MacArthur about a brainstorm idea that he had. And we arranged something where I I was in the state of Washington and just flew down and David flew in. But I had to fly out at 2 o'clock p.m., and John MacArthur could only meet with us at 1.30. So we had 30 minutes to present this brainstorm of an idea. Well, John arrived at 1.42, so I had 18 minutes. So I walked into the office. I shook his hand. I said, John, I just got to sit down with you right away and present this idea. He said, let's sit down. And in seven minutes, I just poured out my heart that I wanted him to sponsor the greatest premier Puritan conference in this sanctuary that has ever been done. And that we could promote, bring in different book dealers who really specialize in the Puritans, draw lay people in on the backside of this Puritan documentary project, and really get people into reading the Puritans, and bolster some of the efforts that are being made today to translate, or not translate, to edit the Puritan works every sentence so that they read like they're written yesterday without sacrificing content. 
I stopped at the end of seven minutes, and I said, what do you think? And John MacArthur looked at me for about 10 seconds. And we were all quiet. And then he said, I'll never forget these three words, I'm all in. So June 3 to 5, 2020. If you could write that down, June 3 to 5, 2020. Bring a whole busload if you're within driving distance and bring your people to the premier Puritan conference, a monumental conference, a once-in-a-generation opportunity here at Grace Community Church in partnership with Reformation Heritage Books and Puritan Reform Theological Seminary. All right, turn with me, please, to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, 19 through 25. First Peter 2:19. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we ask that in this address we may be given the freedom to speak to every one of these men from heart to heart about the challenges and the problems and the remedies in being faithful, in coping with the criticism that comes our way as men of the gospel. And we pray that at the end of this address, we will receive counsel that will help us for years to come. Could it be decades in responding better than we have in the past to criticism? That we would be faithful, faithful under shepherds of Jesus Christ, in all our responses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a privilege and an honor for me to be here and to commemorate the 50th anniversary of John MacArthur. When I think of John, I think of three major things. Two of them have been said already several times. I think of his faithfulness. I was thinking when he said his father was, lived to be 91, and was faithful to the end that maybe the Lord has another 10 or more years for him. And uh, I was thinking of William J., who was 62 years in his pulpit. So who can tell? The Lord bless you, John, and give you many more good years. I also think of his exegetical skills. Um, that had a profound effect on me, especially the Lordship book uh, back, I think, in the 80s or maybe 70s, I'm not sure, but that book was my first introduction to John MacArthur, 
and it hooked me and glued me in. And so as a pastor of, of the church of just only a thousand, but um, I was the only pastor, and I was, for many years, in those years, I was going around from hospital to hospital, did a, dr- a lot of driving around. I knew when John MacArthur was on the radio, I tried to time my, my, my driving time so I could, I could hear him preach. And so he had a profound impact on me in that way as well. But thirdly, there was a particular moment at a Ligonier conference where I had the privilege of being with, um, at a dinner with uh, uh, Piper and Sproul and MacArthur and several others around the table. And we were talking about coping with criticism. And I remember certain things that Sproul said and Piper said and a few others. But then John MacArthur looked around the table, and not in an ostentatious way of looking down at any one of us, he just simply said, well, it's pretty easy to me. If I get criticized and it's not the truth, I just, I just go on and speak the truth, and it'll straighten itself out in due time. End of story. And it just kind of overwhelmed me how, how easily he handled a criticism. So I want, I want to thank you for that, my brother. And uh, I read somewhere once that a minister needs to develop the heart of a child and the hide of a rhinoceros when it comes to coping with criticism. And I'm still working on the hide part. I've got the, I've got the tenderness, I think. I grew up in a home where uh, my mother didn't even let us fight as brothers and sisters. And so I, w- I wasn't used to coping with criticism when I entered the ministry. It was a rude awakening. So I've struggled with this a lot in my ministry. And what I'm bringing you this morning, I'm just speaking to you as a pastor to a pastor. And I know that many of you have struggled with it as well. I was asked to speak on criticism uh, some years ago at at a conference in the South. And I said to my librarian, put on my desk every book about how to cope with criticism in the ministry. And I thought there'd be a a good pile. There was one little paperback called Taking Pot Shots at the Preacher. (laughs) And it wasn't a very good book. So I said, well, I've just got to do this from my own experience. And, uh, but one thing that book said that I'll never forget, and that was this, that in a survey taken of American ministers, 81% said that their greatest problem they have to cope with in the ministry is coping with criticism. How you respond to criticism will have a profound impact on your ministry. You will be known more by your reactions than by your actions. And if you learn to respond to criticism rightly and in a God-glorifying way, your energy and your excitement for the things of God and the promotion of God's kingdom will continue to be fervent and zealous among you. But when your thoughts of the beauty and glory of God in his word will be interrupted by the harsh words of the people you serve or perhaps even your colleagues in ministry, and you become discouraged, disillusioned, pessimistic, cynical, your ministry will be adversely impacted, perhaps for your lifetime. It's quite easy for us as ministers to become pessimistic when we get large dosages of criticism coming our way. 
And yet pessimism in the ministry has pride at its root. As ministers, we become pessimistic when we think we deserve better treatment than we're getting. At times we may be right, but we may also be failing to exercise self-denial as our master did, who suffered such contradiction of sinners and far worse at the hands of men than we ever will. And he never retaliated in kind, as we just read from Peter. So resentment and criticism are the handmaids of pessimism. A complaining spirit produces negativity, depression, bitterness, disillusionment. It also produces a kind of smugness, a kind of blindness to our own condition. When we as ministers become bitter, we often don't see our unforgiving spirit, our habit of backbiting, or our tendency to judge others and magnify their faults. Well, if there was ever a minister that had reason to be pessimistic, it was Paul the prisoner. Yet Paul wrote his most joyous epistle, the Philippians, from prison. Paul knew times of distress and despair, but his epistles show little evidence of it. He could say, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. What an incredible statement. How can we do that when we're criticized on the left and on the right? Well, one thing we need to remember is that people have enough troubles and burdens in their own lives without having to endure the complaints of a pessimistic, disillusioned, discontented pastor. Well, part of the problem is we never talked much together. You've never been trained well in seminary. You've never read much about how we are to cope with criticism. And so, as a brother in the ministry, I assure you that every time you get criticized, you will have to deal with it. You have to walk through the process each time. And if you know what to expect and you know how to handle it by the grace of God, based on the Word of God, you will get through it intact, unharmed, and hopefully with profit to yourself and to your people. So this subject is urgent, and it needs much more attention. You see, it's possible that I learned to cope with criticism externally so that people think I'm doing well, but internally, it can nag at me. It can keep me awake at night. It can bring me into bitter agony. It can make me question my entire ministry. You see, our calling is, of course, not to be above all criticism, but to cope with criticism faithfully, also internally, so that we can be at peace with God and really believe that all things, including criticism, work together for good. So to be faithful in the ministry is also to be faithful in coping with criticism. So what I want to do with you right now is I want to not look at just one passage exegetically, but we'll look at several passages. But I want to use a more topical approach this morning and give you 10 ways to handle criticism, to bring glory to God, to do good to your own soul. Number one, 
Consider criticism to be inevitable. Inevitable. It may come today, it may come tomorrow, it may wait a year, but there's a time coming in your ministry where you will be severely criticized. Most ministers enjoy a short honeymoon period. It can last up to a year. And you come to a church, maybe two years, three, if you're doing really well. When Jesus called his 12 disciples, he gathered them for a pre-internship seminar before sending them out on their first mission. And this is what he said, Matthew 10, 16 and 22. I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. I read once in a diary of, of John Wesley that he questioned in his journal whether he was truly right with God since he had received no criticism for the entire day. <laughs> you know, there's an old Dutch saying that says, he who stands up in front will be kicked in the rear. <laughs> You've just got to expect it. You're the leader. You're the one who's doing the visioneering in the congregation. And whenever you try to change something or move something forward, there's always going to be someone in opposition. Someone. Or more than one person. And so you have to expect it. I'll never forget a visit I had with Ernie Riesinger uh, in Florida. A seasoned veteran pastor, a dear man of God. And uh, I was just, 32 years ago I came to my church in Grand Rapids. I think this was in my second year. And he asked me at a dinner, he said, um, so how, how are things going in Grand Rapids? And uh, it was a rough start. And I said to him, I, I don't know. I don't know. Really, I don't know. I said, it seems like no one is neutral to me. They either love me or they hate me. I'll never forget him taking his big hand and he slapped it across my knee and he said, that's great. <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean? He said, it means you're getting through. He said, if everyone's neutral to you, it means you're not getting through. So that was a bit of an encouragement. <laughs> so don't be surprised and don't be ambushed when you're criticized. Number two, consider the motive and the source. It's imperative, first of all, to listen well to the critic. Full eye contact. Don't express dismay on your face. Listen well. Get the facts straight of what you're being criticized about. But also ask yourself, have I heard the real criticism? Have I understood it rightly and accurately? The real problem, not just a symptom that I'm hearing, but is there something deeper behind the symptom? Unresolved anger, perhaps, depression, changes in life, frustration in relationships, jealousy, shattered expectations, dissatisfaction with church work can be all roots of criticism. So you ask yourself the question, does the person who's criticizing me seek the genuine improvement of my ministry and of the church of Jesus Christ? Is there love in his heart for the cause of God? Or is there an underlying factor? Jealousy, revenge, unresolved anger. As a general rule, give your critic 
the benefit of the doubt. Assume that his motive is pure unless you have solid grounds to think otherwise. And know what to expect from certain types of people. A church is made up, as you well know, of all types of people. Beware of flatterers who fawn over you because they will usually be the first ones to turn against you if you don't give them extra attention. Be with those who are power-hungry and will work with you as long as they feel in control. But if you cross them in any way, they are threatened and can turn your church life into a battleground. Beware of gossipers who are like moles working underground, disturbing the beautiful sod in the church and making a mess of throwing up their piles of dirt. Beware of those with a critical spirit. can be wet, wet blankets spread over the joyful atmosphere of the church. So though you take every critic seriously, you have to ask the question, who is criticizing me? James Taylor in a recent article, said, those who criticize are usually those on the fringe who stand back and are deaf to every appeal for service. You see, criticisms from such persons, though you listen to them, though they may have some good ideas and you may change certain things, but often they do not merit change or any other investment of energy on your part. But if a critic is a mature believer, or particularly an office bearer, who is usually supportive, take that criticism very seriously. Usually you'll find some truth in it that calls for change. And what's more, you should encourage constructive evaluation from such people. Generally speaking, the more you welcome constructive criticism, the more your ministry and your relationships with others will benefit from it. But don't overreact to complaints that are raised only by a few and have little substance to them. Never forget in my first church, three women came to me and were complaining about something going on in the women's group in the church. So I took it to the elders and we changed it according to their wishes. And at the next meeting, we had 15 women coming to the session <laughs> to complain that it was changed. You see, I, I, I read it wrong and I let three people out of 750 changed my mind, not realizing there were many who felt the opposite way. So consider the complaint, first of all, but give due weight to the character of the one who is complaining and how many others may be like-minded. Number three, consider the content, the content. You can learn valuable truth about yourself from your critics and be grateful for that. Your ministry won't be worth its salt if you never got criticized. You'd be proud. You'd be arrogant. God needs to use critics for our humbling. And some of our best friends are those who disagree with us lovingly, openly, and intelligently. Faithful are the friends, are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs 27, 6 says. So helpful criticism is like good medicine though it may be hard to swallow. David Paulison writes this, critics like governing authorities are servants of God to you for good. He who sees into hearts uses critics 
to help us see things in ourselves. Outright failings of faith and practice, distorted emphases, blind spots, areas of neglect, attitudes and actions contradictory to stated commitments, and yes, strengths and significant contributions. So ask yourself, what are the critics saying that might help me improve myself and my ministry? Is there a core of truth in this particular criticism that if changes are made will make me a better minister? And if there is, absorb it, confess your fault, even if you think you're only 10% wrong. Take the lead in self-criticism. Ask for forgiveness wholeheartedly. Make changes for the better, and then move on. That key word here is move on. Deal with it, implement it, confess it, move on. If, however, the critic offers nothing that is helpful, thank the critic for being caring enough to speak to you, and move on. The point point is this. You don't allow criticism to fester inside of you and to build and build and ruin your ministry. It may be painful temporarily, but when you handle it rightly and you move on, it will be profitable in the long run. And in the process, there may be times that you just have to go bury yourself in your work for a while and just have another weight on your foot, like, they, like this, the old sailor who was telling his son how to withstand the water as it came over the stern of a ship. He said, as the water hits you, just swift to your, change to your other foot, and you can take five times the amount of water coming over without falling. I've had it a number of times in my life. I came back from a session meeting late at night, and I knew I was, I was in no, no mood to, to go to sleep. And so I just went and worked at midnight and just worked for a few hours and just set it aside for a little while. And the next day, I would face it again. So don't get self-defensive. Don't allow unresolved internal bitterness be a killer in your life and in your work and actually literally can kill you, by the way. But turn the other cheek as much as you can, as Jesus advised. If your conscience is clear, A simple, straightforward explanation may be helpful in certain cases, though sometimes respectful silence is more appropriate and more effective. Mark 14, 61. At all costs, don't try to explain or justify yourself at length. As Albert Hubbard said, your friends don't need it and your enemies will not believe you anyhow. (laughs) So refuse to sink to the level of your negative critic. Don't render evil for evil. Fight God's battles, not your own, and you will discover that he will fight yours. It's not for you to repay. Dearly beloved, Romans 12, 19, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Don't take every whisper seriously. Don't try to track down where the rumors come from. You're not called to be a policeman. You're called to be a shepherd. Don't get sidetracked into fruitless controversy or spend your energy trying to appease or persuade implacable critics who thrive on animosity. And do remember, there comes a point 
where you have to give up trying to appease some critics. I had a couple of men who, who left our church, and I kept trying to win them back. Finally, I called a friend in Illinois, pastor friend, and told him the whole story. And he said, he said, look, Joel, you've got a thousand other sheep to care for. It's time you move on. You can't solve every problem in this life. One day in eternity, our believing critics will embrace us and we will embrace them. And our unbelieving critics, we will not see. But do ask the question at all points, why am I being misunderstood? Is there something about my sermons, my attitudes, my hobby horses, my personal traits that somehow combine to send the wrong message? You see, often our, our critics are partly right. I have a flesh and blood brother, actually, who said, and he's always on the peacemaking committee in our denomination, and he says this, if you're 10% wrong, just go and ask the brother for forgiveness. And most of the time, the other brother, even if he's 90% wrong, he finally will relent and say, okay, I'm sorry too, it's probably my fault as well. So you can win over a lot by just admitting whatever you can admit and then again move on. Number four, consider the context, the timing, and prayer. The context, the timing, and prayer. Everyone is built differently, but I have a fundamental rule in my own ministry. If at all possible, when someone criticizes me, I ask them to give me 24 hours to think about it, to pray about it. And what I do is I, I seek counsel as well from those I deeply respect. And I find that my answer in 24 hours is usually a lot more reasonable and usually a lot more mellow than if I were to answer them right away. So you take the complaint, first of all, to God. You search your own heart. Prayer puts criticism in its proper context, providing us much-needed perspective. It provides clarity of mind, warmth of soul, decreases anxiety level, and rekindles your passion for what is right and true. Think of when Lot parted from Abram. God told Abram, Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward. Abraham needed that larger perspective to clarify his mind, to refresh his faith, to remember that God was still in charge, even though he knew that Lot should have given him the first choice. And so remember, when one person criticizes you, Remember, the whole rest of the congregation is not. It's okay. You've got to expect it. A lack of such perspective results in a lack of patience. You need to be patient. These things take time. Criticisms ordinarily fade after a month or two. And so Jesus' advice in Luke 21, 19 is very wise. In patience, possess your soul. You see, if you walk with integrity before God, you don't render evil for evil to your critic. Usually over a period of time, your own life will give witness that the criticism 
the false criticism was not true. Number five, consider yourself. Consider yourself. Critics are God's gifts to guard us from self-satisfied attitudes and self-destructive tendencies. When you look back on your ministry, you can say with me, I trust, that you've actually needed every critic you've had because you wouldn't be the man of God you are without being criticized. I've needed every affliction I've ever had so that I can be where I'm at right now in serving the flock. I'll tell you one thing. Criticism makes you much more tender as a shepherd to your sheep. And your sheep will treasure that. And so you need to consider yourself. If you habitually feel slighted, neglected, mistreated, view those feelings with suspicion. Let yourself become more vulnerable. You will complain less if you consider how little criticism you receive, though you're often deserving it. Compared with Christ, who was perfect in word and deed, but was criticized unsparingly all the days of his earthly ministry and was finally condemned. And then take, take to your side some accountability partners. Some of us need more of those than others. I found in my life, Three is sufficient. More than three, life gets too complex. And so what I do is, because my wife is very confidential, she's my number one accountability partner. I take the problem to her, I explain to her what I'm going through, and you have to try to do that objectively, also showing your own weaknesses. Otherwise, your wife can become more bitter than you because she hears only one side of the story. But... If your wife is a wise woman like mine is, by the grace of God, she can be a tremendous help for you. Tremendous help. Secondly, get a trustworthy friend, someone probably who's an elder or a deacon in your church, someone who's wise and experienced, and go to that person and say, be my accountability partner. I, have, I always have one elder that I pick out, and I always say to him, if you ever see the smallest trace of pride in me, I want you to come to me. I want you to talk to me about it. You'll, you'll be my friend if you do that. And anything else, anything you see me in church ministry, or you think I can improve, just come to me because I know you will do it in love. And do pick a person who will do it in love. That's a huge help. And in all three churches, the person I asked for said to me, well, will you be my accountability partner as well? And that's, that's a great relationship. You don't have to tell anybody who it is. Nobody has to know it. But you just have this secret camaraderie between the two of you. That's a true, a true helper. Number three, I always try to have one other elder or minister in another congregation whom I've come to know very well, was a bosom friend, was full of wisdom. And when I get criticism, I often call that person and I say, here's a criticism, here's how I'm hoping to respond what do you think? And nine times out of ten, the person will say, you know, I, I think you're on the right track, but why don't you do this as well? Or why don't you do this a bit differently over here? And I say, why didn't I think of that? But you see, this gives you time and prayer and counsel to think about how to wisely respond to criticism. Because your initial response can do untold damage 
that could take years to repair, if ever, if you get started on the wrong foot. Number six, a very important one, consider Scripture. The ego or self-image of many of us as ministers is so fragile that we cannot endure even small doses of criticism without crumbling. And we need to develop better emotional muscle. And God uses criticism to do that. You see, one way that God helps us this way is by helping us to know and to memorize Scripture that helps us a great deal. I think every minister in this place you have certain texts, don't you, that are very dear to you. And in times of trials, God has come to you and impressed that text upon your heart. You've got it pasted to your computer, or if not there, you've got it pasted in your heart. Better yet. And you repeat that text over and over again. I know when I was going through a series of trials, there was one text I must have repeated 2,000 times in those years. Almost every day, just kept, kept resting my soul on that text. And what an encouragement that is. In fact, in a really crisis time in my life, I actually had five people from North America, elders and ministers in the denomination, call me up and tell me that the Lord had put the very same text in their mind and heart for me, and they didn't know each other. And that text became very precious to me. It's Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. For this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. That text just naturally goes through my mind when I get unjust criticism. But there are others. One great encouragement is Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for good to them that love God. <laughs> Lord, I love thee. I can't deny that. Well, that critic, that criticism will work together for good. Believe that. Do you believe the word of God? Another one. What I do now thou knowest not. John 3, 7. But thou shalt know hereafter. Someday I'll understand. I have to walk by faith now and not by sight. And another one. No chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them that are exercised thereby. Gymnasium, from gymnasium. Lord, exercise me. Exercise me through this criticism, through this trial, that I may grow in righteousness and holiness. Consider Scripture. Number seven, and the most important, Consider Christ. Look to Jesus more in the face of mounting criticism, more than ever. Hebrews 12, 3, Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. This is what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 2. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. If Christ, being holy, harmless, undefiled, was maligned, falsely accused, scourged, crowned with thorns, mocked, struck in the face, spat upon, rejected, and crucified, what should we imperfect pastors expect? If one of Jesus' hand-picked apostles betrayed him for a paltry sum, and another swore that he did not know him for fear of suffering with him, 
Why should we expect to carry on our ministries without ever being attacked, betrayed, or deserted? It's part of the price of being shepherds of the great shepherd. If our critics happen to be in error and we are suffering unjustly, we ought to thank God that our critics don't know how bad we really are. Actually, that actually happened to me on one occasion. Someone was spreading a rumor in the churches that was entirely, I mean, there wasn't a trace of truth in it. And it was a nasty one. It was one that was hard to uproot, and it spread fast, and I was bitter, and I tried to pray, and I couldn't pray. I was pacing the floor in my study. Actually, was, I, was down, I was face down on the floor, really. It was in those old days when you had the shag carpet. I was pulling on the shag carpet and just crying out, Oh, God, oh, God, have mercy, have mercy. There's nothing I could do about it. And finally, I just in desperation, with no relief, I just went over to my bookcase. I pulled out a book. It was John Brown's A Christian Pastor's Manual. I just flipped it open, started reading, and then I came across this statement. Perhaps people have criticized you falsely with no grounds whatsoever, and you are bitter and you are angry. And I go, that's me! And John Brown says, just get down on your knees and thank God that they don't know the whole truth about you because the truth is worse than the rumor. <laughs> well, to consider Christ for me, for me, is by far the best, best way to cope with criticism. When he is so perfect, and he endured so much for me. Who am I to complain as a sinful man when I have to endure a little bit for him? I was in a congregation where there was a lot of criticism with really Christ-centered preaching. It was a bit hyper-Calvinistic. And there was a night where 24 men came in mass to the consistory room. And there was a spokesman. And I remember the spokesman's foot was about six inches from my foot as he spoke. And his leg was shaking. So I know he was nervous, but he was strong. And he just opposed my Christ-centered preaching with might and main. In fact, at one point in that conversation, I hardly dare to say it, but I'm going to say it because I know some of you are in this situation. He said, Christ, Christ. He said, we are so sick of hearing about Christ. That's what he said. And I was just weeping. But at that moment, I realized that he was completely wrong. And I felt a sense of compassion for this man and the 23 with him that they didn't understand the gospel. And you see, that helps us when we consider what Christ endured and what we endure, especially if we're slighted for his name's sake, we are to count it in honor that we are persecuted for his name's sake. If we have Christ, who being innocent suffered infinitely more for our sake than we shall ever suffer for his sake, we have more than enough to cope with any trial. 
Why should we complain? Why should we be bitter? Just drink deeply of the love of Christ. Embrace your altogether lovely Savior. Find your delight in him, and you'll conquer the anger and the self-pity, and you'll be able to pray for and love your critic. Number eight, consider the patience of the saints. Consider the patience of the saints. There's many examples here. For time's sake, I'm just going to do one. Nehemiah. Nehemiah was criticized by Sembalat and Tobiah seriously. And some of their criticisms were at least partially valid, weren't they? Nehemiah's workers were not skilled. Many were not fully committed to the work. Some sections of the wall were not strong. Some sections could not be rebuilt. Nehemiah 4. Critics were right on several fronts. But here we find the potent weapon of ridicule deployed. Ridicule needs no factual ammunition, not even argument, yet ridicule is effective because it strikes at the hidden insecurity or weaknesses residing in all of us. But how did Nehemiah respond? Did he give up his vision? Did he respond in anger back? No. He reminded himself that the source of his vision was God. So he directly prayed to God. That's the first thing he did. Oh my God, remember me for good. Then setting up a guard, he adjusted his plan according to the circumstances without abandoning his vision. He adjusted his plan without abandoning his vision. You see, a failed plan does not equal a failed vision. Usually it means we just need to swallow our pride temporarily, revise or redraft the plan so that the vision can better be implemented. In the face of fierce criticism, it strengthens us to remember that if we do not grow weary in well-doing, we will reap a harvest in due time. It may often feel we are hacking our way through a forest of thorns one step at a time. But by our weary arm and many wounds, we are blazing a trail for others to follow. It will be okay in the end. God will help us and God will keep us. Number nine, consider your duty to love, even to love the one who criticizes you. That's challenging, especially when the criticism is entirely false. But here's seven quick tips on how to do it. Number one, become better acquainted with those who criticize you. Don't run away from them. You can't love the unknown. Seek to understand them. Seek to see what makes them tick. Number two, be willing to forgive any injury done to you and immediately forgive. Don't put them through a testing period. Just immediately forgive. It's the way the Lord forgives us when we, by grace, believe in him alone for salvation. I had a guy in my ministry who, who assiduously took notes of every sermon. And every other week, he would give me a call, say, Pastor, I need to come and see you. I've got some problems with your sermons. <laughs> took him into the study. We walked over the ground over and over and over again. I don't really know why he was a member of our church. He certainly wasn't on one page with our church. But I tried to patiently bear with him. And this went on for about a year. And then I asked him 
instead of every other week, could he, could he come just once a month? <laughs> so he came once a month, and then the meetings were like an hour and a half, and I realized this wasn't working. So I said to my wife one day, I said, he called me again. I said, I, I just have to put a stop to this. So I, today I'm going to tell him, you know, once a year maybe. <laughs> so I went over to the meeting, and uh, he sits in the chair, and he looks at me and he says, I've really been a thorn in your flesh, haven't I? And I just looked at him. I didn't know where he was going with it. I didn't say anything. And he said, you know, I was complaining about your sermons to someone else, and they really rebuked me this past week, and I searched my soul, and I discovered I am completely wrong. And I'm here today only for one reason. Is there the smallest corner in your heart that you could possibly forgive me. I mean, talk about surprise. And I just said to him, stand up, man. And he stood up, and I gave that guy a bear hug like you won't believe. I pressed him to me, and I said, I forgive you immediately and completely before you change your mind. <laughs> I, I didn't add that. <laughs> You see, Spurgeon put it this way. He said, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant whenever you repeat the Lord's Prayer. Forgive and forget. And when you bury a dead dog, Spurgeon added, you don't leave its tail sticking up above the ground. <laughs> Number three, pray with your critic. Pray with your critic. If he visits you, always begin with prayer and ask him to close in prayer, unless he's very angry or bitter at the end of the visit. But be very careful in your prayer not to come against him in any way in your prayer. Go the extra mile to ask the Lord to forgive you and to help you change any area that needs forgiveness. Be as specific as possible. Pray with integrity, with faith, with humility. Sometimes that opening prayer can do a whole lot of good. And then pray for your critic in private, number four. It's difficult to stay bitter. This is something I've really learned the hard way, but I'm still learning. It's difficult to stay bitter against a critic who you're genuinely praying for. Prayer can help you so much. Number five, feel compassion for your negative critic. Because really, some people the problem really has become so severe that you feel sorry for their own spiritual condition and you wonder if their spiritual state is even right with God. And six, put away anything that inhibits love. As Peter says, lay aside all malice, all guile, all hypocrisies, all envies, all evil speakings. So when you have enemies in the church... You go up to them in the church parking lot after church and shake their hand just, just like you would with others. You don't treat them any differently. You don't shun them in any way. And often, long term, that can have a powerful effect on winning them back. My mother was extremely good at that. There was a, a situation in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where my parents lived in the parsonage for a while because there was no minister. One man wasn't appreciative that my parents moved in there, and he refused to say hello to my dear, sweet, innocent little mother. And she couldn't handle it. Every time 
she'd walk into church, the man would be standing in front of the coat rack, and he'd turn around and show her his back. And so she said, I'm not taking this from him. So when he turned his back, she came right around underneath the coat rack, put, put her hand out. Did that about three times, and that solved the problem. You see, you keep loving your critic. You keep loving your critic. That's the final point. You will discover that when you lovingly serve your critic, rather than resentfully retaliate against him, your own wounds will heal more rapidly, but his will as well. Normally, not always. And number 10, consider eternity. Consider eternity. On the other side of Jordan, our faithful Savior will be waiting for you, dear brother. And he will never let us down. And oh, to hear those words in that day. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. To think that Jesus loves us despite our wrong responses to critics. That Jesus loves us when he knows everything about us. And he will take us to be with him where he is forever. It's just overwhelming. And he will wipe away every tear from your eye. And he will prove to be the friend who sticks closer than a brother. And then all wrongs will be made right. All injustices will be avenged. All criticism will be silenced. All evil will be walled out. And all good will be walled in. And because of Jesus Christ and him alone, we will enjoy perfect fellowship, perfect friendship with the triune God, forever knowing, loving, and communing with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And as a woman embracing her newborn forgets the pain of delivery, you will forget all the trials of your ministry when you embrace Emmanuel. In heaven, there will be perfect unity. We will commune with the holy angels and the spirits of just men made perfect without ever having any divisions or any criticisms. There'll be no denominations, no disagreements, no misunderstandings, no theological arguments, no ignorance. There won't be a hair's breadth of difference among the saints. Even Luther and Calvin will agree on everything. And John Wesley and George Whitfield will embrace each other. And we'll all be one in Christ, who is in the Father, and the Father in Him. And we'll be loved by God with the very same love that He loves His only begotten Son. And there will be a complete, perfect, visible, intimate oneness. Our believing critics will embrace us. And three great truths will happen in heaven. First, we will understand that all the criticism here below we've received was used in the hands of our potter, our divine potter, to shape us as the exact vessels fit for Emmanuel's land that he wanted us to be in this life as well as in the life to come. And second, we will see fully that all the criticisms we endured on earth were but a light affliction, as Paul calls it, compared to the weight of a glory, eternal glory that awaits us. A light affliction. And third, in heaven, we will be more than repaid for every affliction we endured on earth, 
for the sake of our dear and best and perfect friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, happy day. When this mortality shall put an immortality, this corruption, incorruption, and we shall ever be with the Lord. Let all the criticism that our sovereign God in his infinite wisdom calls us to endure in this life make us just more homesick for the criticism-free land of Beulah, where the Lamb is all the glory. For there the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. So in conclusion, keep that positive view of the ministry. Don't let the critics make you bitter. The best is yet to be. You're traveling to the celestial city, and your savior, your caller, your sender, your master, your kinsman, your dearest, nearest elder brother, he will carry you all the way even across the Jordan, into Emmanuel's land. And remember, why should you be disillusioned with ministry when you have the most important task in all the world for King Jesus? My dad used to always say to me as a boy, if God ever calls you to the ministry, you'll have a job that is more important than living in the White House. Because he said you'll be dealing with eternal souls at your charge. We never have to wake up in the morning, do we? Have a midlife crisis. That our job isn't important enough or worthwhile. Richard Baxter said, I would not change my life for any of the greatest dignities on earth. I am content to consume my body, to sacrifice to God's service, to spend all that I have, and to be spent myself for the souls of men. I love what I read about Edward Payson. He used to sit in the study. And every now and then, he'd be so overwhelmed that God called him to be an ambassador for Christ, despite all the problems of the ministry, that he would all alone and just sit there and clap his hands for joy. I can't believe, I can't believe that God has called a sinner like me to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. What a calling you have. What an honor you have. You are an ambassador of the King of Kings, brother. You have his promise in his word that shall not, your words you bring in his name shall not return to him void. Christ is your intercessor at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit is your advocate in your heart. God will not allow criticism beyond, beyond what he provides grace for you to bear. 1 Corinthians 10. Believe that. Every criticism, like any other hardship or difficulty in life, will eventually work for your good. So brothers, let us stop our carnal complaining. Let us count our blessings. Let us persevere in the good fight of faith. Don't resign, but re-sign. Re-enlist in the cause of Christ. You've got the best of assurances in that fight, in the promises of God. You've got the best of advocates and generals in Jesus Christ. You've got the best of field commanders in the Holy Spirit. You've got the best of rewards and results, everlasting glory. Follow Fred Malone's advice. We must quit expecting people to respond properly at all times, making people our tin gods of life and death. This is idolatry, to live and die upon our people's behavior. 
Paul said, having received mercy, we faint not. The comfort of God's mercy received is the only lasting motivation I have ever found to labor on in the midst of trial. So repent of our wrong responses to criticism and believe in Christ afresh and walk by faith and lift up the hands that hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. And for every look you take at yourself and your circumstances, as Richard Baxter advised, take 10 looks to Jesus Christ. Do you know when we can start complaining? When we really can start complaining? We can start complaining, said one of the Puritans, when you've given as much for Christ as he's given for you. And that day will never happen. So gird up the loins of your mind. Stand fast. Your Savior is greater than both Apollyon and your critic and the times. Your sender will not desert you. Hold fast your profession. Even when friends, even your own familiar friend, lifts up his heel against you by clinging to your high priest who is holding fast to you. Trust him. Trust him. Don't put your trust in men or in princes or in a dying fallen world, but in the Prince of Peace. And look Christ's word, lean Christ's word, pray Christ's word, preach Christ's word, live Christ's word. Look to him. You know, when my mother was dying, she had dementia the last 18 months, and uh, she couldn't respond to much. I was reading to her six weeks before she died, at the age of 92, from Revelation 21. I said, Mother, don't you long for heaven? She said, Honey, I'm too tired to even think about it. I go, Oh. And I read the words, I'm Alpha and I'm Omega. And I said, Mother, do you know what that means? And I thought, oh, that's stupid. Of course she doesn't. And all of a sudden, she has this wonderful flash of insight. She says, doesn't that mean that Jesus is the beginning and he's the end of all our salvation? And he's everything in between, she said. She added to the text. I said, mother, that's a better answer than I could even have said. He's everything. Believe that. Believe that. He's everything. You are nothing. I am nothing. You know, the Tuscanini... Did a, conducted a super uh, orchestra in the 19th century on the, the, the Ninth uh, Symphony of Beethoven. And when he got done, there was just clapping, clapping, clapping. The, the, the conductor and the orchestra went out of the room, came back in, went in and out and in and out, and they just kept clapping. Finally, Tuscanini looked at his orchestra and he whispered hoarsely, gentlemen, gentlemen, you are nothing. And I am nothing but Beethoven. Beethoven. Beethoven is everything. Well, he was wrong. But as you and I walk across the stage of this life, let us seek what Spurgeon said, the more my name will perish, the better. If only the name of Jesus is exalted. Because I am nothing. But he is everything. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, let him be everything in your ministry, in your heart, in your life, in your passion. Spurgeon said, continue with double earnestness to serve your Lord when there is no visible fruit before you. So pray more. Look at circumstances less. 
Bury not the church before she be dead, said John Flavel. And I would add, bury not yourself nor the church before you and she be dead, because Christ has promised no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment thou shalt condemn, for this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, totally of me, saith the Lord. God bless you. Let's pray together. Great God of heaven, we ask thy benediction upon this address, and we pray, Lord, that we may respond better to criticism, that thou wouldst forgive all our sins in the past in which we've done so poorly at this critical task, and help us to learn to focus more on Jesus and to be more submissive and more full of wisdom from above and give us what we need to follow in our master's footsteps all the way to the celestial city. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.